Composer John Powell is a multiple Annie Award winner. His scores include The Bourne Trilogy, How to Train Your Dragon, Shrek, Chicken Run, Ice Age, X-Men The Last Stand, Rio, Happy Feet, Solo A Star Wars Story, Kung Fu Panda, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and The Italian Job, as well as many more. He's been nominated for an Academy Award, Grammys, and BAFTAs. A Prussian Requiem, his oratorio to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of World War I, premiered at the Royal Festival Hall. John Powell, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, nice to be here. So you just arrived. I think you've been working at this creative process thing for a while now. Um, yes, allegedly. <laughs> yeah, Lily. No, it's, it's it's very interesting. But your love of music—I mean, I think you go back to some of your first memories of music um, and why you decided you love to be in this world. Well, my father was a musician, so I was kind of surrounded by it from a very young age. But it wasn't until I was seven heard one particular piece of music called the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto in E minor, and it it just set something going in my brain where it, it, I'd answered, not answered, but it spoke at another layer, of, no, another layer of communication, another level that I had been probably as a seven-year-old stumbling to try and find the language for. And here was something that I completely understood. I knew exactly what was being said on in a much deeper way than I had ever heard in any other communicative system so in the language that you know of English that I could speak at age seven which was probably okay I wasn't a stupid child but it would have felt like that was very limited compared with what I heard explained to me in a kind of a more esoteric way admittedly Mm -hmm. I mean I'm not saying that I can I can't draw a line between language really and music it's too it's too disparate Mm -hmm. but there are so many levels of human communication in it that i hear feelings obviously imagery a sort of indescribable warmth chills all of these kind of words we try to use to to explain the feelings but the communication is very clear when music is good it's very clear you hear a story that is a a four-dimensional story and I think that probably set me up as well for and I never really intended it but set 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 me up for working within cinema as well because I and I didn't really know what I was doing in cinema and in storytelling Mm -hmm. until a lot later in my career in Hollywood and then more recently again I've I've found that my storytelling chops is much more connected with my understanding of music that I ever realized. And that ability to be able to tell stories, I've now tried to sort of channel back into my composition for that isn't for film and TV. <laughs> so it's, a, it's been an interesting feedback loop of what music does is tell me stories that are un, I'm unable to read or understand any other way. Then I work in a medium where I'm using music to support more literal storytelling and then that education that I got of literal storytelling I found to become now much more useful as I write music that has no literal story to it. <laughs> no, 
know, it's, I find it very fascinating. I, someone, I love dance. I dance every day, but my understanding of how, I mean, what you do, whether it's composing pieces that are linked to film or are performed in concert halls, that is mystifying to me. But I find it interesting, as I have spoken to some composers or musicians, that it's like an like a physical embodied experience, like they'll see colors or like they can see a painting and that translates into music. So is there, you're, you're kind of describing for those who aren't in the world of music, but appreciate it. Is there a visualization process or how, like, yeah, do you feel, do you feel notes? Do you feel sounds in a physical way like that? It's a, it's a good, it is a very good question because age seven, I hear this piece of music and I immediately, Am I able to understand it completely? Everybody in the world can understand music. That's the great thing about it. You, yeah. you get from music something very deep or very simple or very complex or whatever you need, whatever you want to take from it. It's wonderfully vague and you get something from it. So the question has been since then is what the hell is that? <laughs> One of the things I've always said is that I, I understood how to hear music I, I it's like a language you can you can understand immediately with almost no effort whatsoever but I've spent the last you know 45 years 48 years trying to speak it mm-hmm. and I still don't really know how to speak it I'm still s- struggling to try and find the language a, a way of explaining what I want to say with music so the manipulation of music to say what I want much harder than understanding it, thankfully, which is why it's such a universal language. We can all understand it. Mm-hmm. So, but the, to come to the actual sort of technical question of what is music, mm-hmm. I don't know. I've, I've, I've thought a lot about it. Birdsong is an interesting you know, evolutionary function. It gave some species a mutation to be able to sing and make calls to mates, to be attracted to mates in a way that was after colors. So mm. birds became, or early bird-like animals, became colorful to attract mates. It was a useful sexual kind of attraction. And then you could do that over, I don't know, several hundred yards. And lo and behold, if you, if you made a noise that was attractive, if you made melody, then you could attract a mate over 800 yards in the jungle. Mm. So you actually got an evolutionary advantage from it. So if that's one of the functions that we've ended up with as part of our musical understanding is that melody, but in a way that was, that was a communication and that, and we did also have language. So a language evolves, it pushes us in a social evolution to be more successful. Okay. So that's one thing. And then there's rhythm. So rhythm and cycle. So repetition of rhythms are very important everything from a day a year <laughs> months seasons we have big giant macro cycles but we also have these micro cycles in our own body of our heart our breathing what it means to be alive is to have a heartbeat and to breathe death brings an end to that that series of cycles so so we're constant we've been surrounded by and we've evolved using rhythms and melody in in the natural world and we've grown our success as a species on top of every other species we've developed from as part of i mean one of the things about humanity is that we we see the future we can tell the future this is our success i think in in the world in in the history of 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 our you know planet 
is we can tell that our brains were developed in a way that you can tell that if you throw a spear ahead of where an antelope is going to be, you will hit the antelope. That's an actually a really fundamental, fundamentally difficult thing for, mm-hmm. uh, for us to have calculated. And it's basically be able to tell what the future is. And, and it's be able to tell that seasons will come. And it's also be able to tell that we will all die. That's the original sin, is uh, knowledge of death. No other animal has that. I mean, I'm sure there are people who can say that there are other animals that, that know that. But do they, they all know to survive. But do they know that, can they communicate that they will, they're at a point they will all die? So all of these brain functional developments, I think, brought with it some kind of vestigial mass of calculations that are possible which when you put in frequencies that can be divided and amplified and organized against each other music then becomes a mixture of the rhythms of our life rhythms plus the melodies of speech and communication plus this other thing which is harmony and the harmony is our ability to be able to hear one frequency be in line be lined up with another frequency. So if you take A, frequency of 440, if you take half of that A, you divide it in half, it's 220, and that's an octave. Divide that one in half, it's 110, and that's another octave. So now you've got three octaves. All of the harmonic sort of nodes of those frequencies line up together. It all works together. As soon as you then add a fifth against that, so you add an E, I haven't got anything up at the moment, otherwise I'd play you. As soon as you add an E, you now have some of the same frequencies, but there are others that aren't going to, of these harmonics, that aren't going to line up. And they cause, they cause us to understand that we have a lot of things that are similar, but then some aren't. And that, that tension is very slight in a fifth. And as soon as you then add a third, the amount of tensions within the harmonics that line up and those that don't become more and so on and so forth until you're absolutely, as a human, you're actually able to hear tensions and release. And that's really all that harmonic language is. It's a tension and a release. And a lot of times, until you get to the 20th century, you get to the 12-tone scale, which is, and it, which is like uh, communism for, for music, which was an attempt to get away from everybody being stuck in a, a very, very complex harmonic language. Until then, we all followed this kind of idea that that harmonies could be in or out. And so Mm -hmm. the micro and macro of it is that we're constantly being told in music there's stories of tension and release, which is a fundamental part of storytelling and a fundamental part of life. The tension of birth, the release of birth, the the tension of pregnancy, the release of birth, the tension of changing from a child to an adult the release of becoming an adult the tension of the impending death of a parent the release of realizing that you are now alone you have no parent but you you have your own children so there's lots of our whole world is filled with the stories of tension and relief uh, and release and there it is in this kind of microcosm in music and it's passing us by incredibly fast sometimes and, and other times very, very slowly and elegantly. Other times it's just, and, and nobody, nobody's going to be listening to that thinking, tension release, tension release. 
but I think somewhere in the backs of our hugely kind of uh, uh, these brains that have been built for somehow sensing all of this, <laughs> be able to calculate the tension and release of harmonic nodes being in or out, we get some kind of pleasure from it. And so then you take that and you, and it's, and it, it's, it's a temporal, like storytelling, it's temporal. So it, it passes time as you tell the story and it passes time as you listen to music as opposed to art, which is, it's a fixed point in time. The temporal part of art comes with how you look around the painting and how you understand the painting and how your, your opinion of the painting changes. That's temporal. But in music, it is actually temporal whilst it's happening. And it's the same with dance. Dance, if you think about it, you're dancing in movements and they're representative of the history of mankind. Uh, and and you, you feel them as a dancer in your body and, and, the, and the viewer watches it. And, it. and the complexity of our knowledge of dance is huge, but we don't respond thinking that way. Oh, yes, this is... <laughs> this is how uh, you know, my ancestors of a thousand generations ago would have danced and this is what it meant that is all kind of built into the language of it so all of these I suppose what I'm saying is all, all of these highly complex systems prove to be incredibly simple for us and they resonate and they, have, they bring us pleasure and they recognition and an understanding of, of a story that as ancient all of those things happen just by hearing a few notes of music just by seeing a few images just by seeing a few so it's it's all just a, a communication of something that everything everyone has always all always known which is why it can be so fundamentally um powerful i think to us because it it requires no conscious thought for us to immediately be connected with our the history of our of our species and our race and our family and our friends and, and that can be as short an amount of time as just hearing a year ago a song a year ago that you heard when you met somebody and the importance of that song comes back to a music that you heard when you were a child and you remember a, a time with your parents to you know understand I if you think about music is it's a time time machine for me it's a time machine i can i can listen to ravel and and i'm he's telling me things that very intimately that only i can get by listening to his music he couldn't write anything that would have explained what he seems to be explaining to me when i listen to his music and he's doing it in a way for, he's doing it from 100 years ago and it's just as pertinent as if he was here trying to explain it to me so um <laughs> Uh, it doesn't make any difference how long ago he wrote it. It's still going to speak to me. Um, so I don't know. Did that answer the question? I wish I oh, it, it, it answered <laughs> it and, and, and more. I, when I, I love the expanse of this. There's nothing, there's no, in the creative process, there's no such thing as being too detailed. I mean, I like that. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I've been surprised, but I, I, as I learn more how writers for film and also television depend on music and to really think about it and I interviewed one writer director um, showrunner and he said to me and he says that music taught him everything because he's also uh, a musician as well and he said 
that he didn't care about language. Like he said, it was so shocking to me. I was like, how can a writer tell you that he doesn't care about language? And it just made me, he, he understands with the visual medium of television, with the images that they go and that the language is important, but he didn't, it doesn't have to be all harmonious, as you say, because you're providing that with the, the images and with the music and how much that is really supporting the story in ways we can't even quantify, right? Yeah. As soon as you start getting into adding visuals, music, storytelling, mm. editing, mm. how how you edit, you now build up a lot of different languages all simultaneously, and they all need to give or take or more or less at different moments in the story. Ultimately, it's you're trying to make if you're trying to make art, you're you're trying to make a, something that is greater than the whole. A lot of entertainment isn't art, but it still works at such a kind of a fundamental level for us. It was George Miller, who I worked with on Happy Feet, was the one who kind of really gave me a, a, a really great education in, <laughs> in storytelling. And, mm. and he talks about it as being 50,000 years of dreaming. Mm. Uh, and it is, if you think about how we always told stories, it's probably the equivalent of psych psychiatric sessions together, <laughs> mm. um, where we all... We all talk about the same problems, and we do it by use of the hero character, which we either identify with or, or empathize with in some way. And that hero character is us. And, and it could be multiple characters simultaneously in a, in a story, or it can just really be the one. We can see the echoes of our own lives in these stories. We can see how these characters suffer and fight for the same things or or we feel that they're the same things even though it could be a totally different story i remember watching a, a great film written by peter morgan who is the fantastic writer of king's speech and the, the queen and uh, the crown i think he did all of these it was a it was a story about brian Clough, who was a football manager in the 70s and i never liked football soccer for the americans football i never liked football i have absolutely no interest in football i didn't give a shit about anything to do with football <laughs> or brian clough and yet i watched the film and i was absolutely kind of entranced by it and of course somehow it is that peter morgan as a storyteller managed to get me to see my life in in a in a what should be really an abstract character and yet everything in brian clough's life in this story, see it somehow resonated. And yes, all of the, every, every camera move, every time you move a camera, every time you pan a camera, every time you zoom or, or, or cut, you know, it, every time you change the, the view of the camera, it's part of a language that is sort of unspoken and therefore has a, has a kind of, is, has a, an instant connection to the, to the, to the subconscious of, of, of people because we don't think about how we look at things in, in an argument we don't think about how our eyes change between the people who are shouting at each other but cinema has has figured out a way of of setting up a, a language and timing of editing that now has become a second nature to us we we really understand it fundamentally in the same way that music understands tension and release and color if you look at Apocalypse Now, if you run Apocalypse Now from the beginning to the end, it goes very gradually changes color. Mm. I think it goes from basically blue, greens, and then red, ends, ends in blood. 
very deliberately. And there are people who specialize in kind of color schemes for movies. And then there, and almost like what I'm trying to get to is almost at the very end of that, the writer said, is the language. Mm-hmm. Well, there's all these other fundamentally kind of deeper, kind of more hidden tools that you can have to tell a to to set the to set the formation um, of the story, and then on top of that, become the the last part of that in a way is the language of that everyone is speaking and in a great in great art and plays and and films everything that everyone says is not as important as the subtext of what everyone says or doesn't say Um, so so all all of these other things come to play and therefore it does become a much more it's a it's that's why it's a nobody sets out to make a bad film but Mm -hmm. and yet there are so many of them it's a very complex collaboration between all of these different uh, sets of parameters that you can affect people with. It's amazing how much of it does work for people. People have a pretty low standard. <laughs> you know, if you, if you think of, we, we found the right person telling you a story can be as entrancing as, I, I always give this comment, which is I read, I read Harry Potter books to my son when he was young. Mm. And he was entranced just by my voice. And I didn't put on different voices for different characters. I yeah. probably read badly. He got as much as he needed to, for that to transform his, his mind into a, a place of understanding the, complete, the story and being within the story and, and identifying with the story as a $150 million film can, where everything is visualized, literally. So the right... The right level of the right language at the right time, and that by language I mean any of the languages—visual, you know, art, movement, anything—they all they all pull in enough on their own to be able to tell the right story when the story is is elegantly done. You can look at one painting and you get everything. You can look at one, you can read a book and get everything. You can watch what's her name, Bausch, I remember watching. Oh, yes, Pina Bausch, <laughs> yeah. yes. Pina Bausch, you know, uh, on television. On television, not even live. I remember yeah. watching on television and just getting everything. It's stunning. And and suddenly you get everything. But then there's other times when when these all these kind of sides of telling the same story can can come together and make it, you know, even greater. I mean, opera is obviously, opera, often has terrible storytelling, but the music transcends the storytelling. Uh, well, the story might be okay, but the, the language in it, if you ever read the surtitles in opera, it's like, it's mind-bendingly awful. Um, <laughs> there's such terrible words, unless they're great in the original language, maybe they're poetic in the original language, so when you see a translation. But I feel not. I think, I think they're just really, it's the equivalent of taking, some operas I've seen feel like they've, they've taken a, a script that's at the level of a soap opera, mm. uh, and and but because you have music by Verdi, <laughs> yes. it's amazing. So, if Verdi was to come back and score a soap opera, maybe that would be the same. Thing <laughs> that would now some of you writers out there, there's a challenge for you. Um, yeah. I want to speak a little bit about your some of your artistic choices. So, to speak about some of these things you've been discussing, but within the context of. The, uh, some of your film scores. So when you speak about building blocks, you were talking about 
harmonies and then tension really. So say if you're known for collaborating with some filmmakers a number of times, I think about the Bourne films, I think about the others, Doug Lyman and Green Glass. And so if you're to speak about when, what do you reach for? Say I'm, I'm a painter, so I think of things in palettes. What are you reaching for when you want it in context of some of those like notable, like dramatic scenes? What are those elements, those building blocks? Because you were talking about the components that will shorthand that. Or when you're a happy feed or some of the animated films you've worked on, where you want to reach for joy or humor even. What, because I don't understand how to, I only understand when I hear it, as you said, but I don't know how to understand how to compose that to make that. Well, I, I think you can, you can break it down into, I think, and this is stuff that I, I might, I might think about after, but probably I'm just instinctive on the sure. front end of these things. Yeah. So let's say, so for a film like Born, perhaps, I decided that the reason the score is so minimalistic is perhaps that it's a, it's about being lost. It's about somebody who, who comes into the world lost, not knowing who they are. It's an action film. It's all that sort of stuff as well. But if you look at the core of it, it's about loss of history, loss of your history, loss of where, where your roots are, where, why are you here? So you don't want, so one of the ways you can do that is to buy, it's by sort of standing, standing still. If you're, if you don't know where you've come from, or you don't know where you're going, you stand still. Now, musically, that would be very boring. So the question is, how do you represent that? So you, so harmonically, it, it doesn't shift an awful lot. So there's a lot of, lot of chords on top of a, you know, a single tone. So if you, if you take a, you know, it's called a, a pedal point. So you, you have one note that's going all the way through. It's, it's in a lot of Russian music. So I would have got a lot of inspiration from that by listening to Hachaturian and Borodin. There's a lot of that. And you basically just keep one note constant and then you move the harmony around it. And that, that, and you can, then you can kind of circle. You're not really going anywhere, but you feel, have a feeling of searching. I think that's what I would have got from listening to Borod and Prince Igor when I was a kid. I was got he, there's a there's a there's a search going on here, like so a searchlight, almost a constant note. Well, it's a it's a, a wandering, it's a oh. wandering. I, I I'll maybe if I look here, no, yeah. maybe if I look here, no, maybe if I look here, but because you've kind of got an anchor, albeit a very a very small anchor, you go and you look, you come back all the time. So that harmonically was how I think I did a lot of that. But because of the function of the film, which was an action film, I needed drive. So then you add rhythm to that. So you've got this tension where it goes and it comes back, it goes and comes back, it goes and comes back. It never leaves that point, except for important moments. Then, then I would choose to really change the key of everything, shift everything, when the character understood something new. So I literally take whole sections of the film and they would be kind of around one pedal point, one, one certain, but then he would discover something and that's when I could, I could clear that out and I could find a new place. So now we take a new step and then I do the same thing. And then maybe the harmony would be slightly more tortured or less tortured, depending on how stressful the scenes were. <laughs> but, under, but then underneath you, you, you try and use a pulse that tells you time is, time is moving forward. So then you get this temporal tension, 
we, and depending on how fast or slow you do that, it's very important as to how how tense we feel as an audience underneath all of the information that's going on visually. Hello, my name is Sammy Sherian, and I am a communications major with a minor in mass communications at the University of Minnesota. One of my biggest passions is music soundtracks. As from composing to curating, it truly is the universal language that transcends cultures with its ability to allow anyone to enter a wonderfully creative space in their minds. To this day, you can always find me listening to music, whether I choose ambient music for studying or sleeping, or hyperpop for when I'm feeling extra futuristic. But it was never about filling the silence. I truly feel like the music I play has a powerful impact on my mood, outlook on life, and even motivation. In the same way, composers like John Powell have mastered the ability to tune into silent feelings and give them a literal voice, adding a whole new level of complexity for the audience to digest. I really liked what John said about his experience in cinema through literal storytelling and how it has helped influence his compositional music that may not have a literal story. This highlights the versatility of the creative process, as simply changing your medium can bring about different layers of meaning, and even create a sort of harmonic theme, where the mediums overlay each other to create a cohesive piece. This reminds me of a film I saw recently called The Color of Pomegranates, a sort of avant-garde film that combines beautiful imagery and fashion, hauntingly intriguing music, and a vague storyline, allowing the viewers to appreciate a new facet of the film each time they watch it. Like Powell says, people can tell when the music is good, and when music is also used at the right places, at the right time, it can sometimes amplify or foreshadow much more powerfully than visual cues can. For those just joining us, Mia Funk continues this interview with John Powell, an amazing film composer with renowned soundtracks from films like The Bourne Trilogy, Solo, A Star Wars Story, The Lorax, and many more. I mean, I don't know, is it like dance or do you feel, because you're looking at the footage, the final or one of the final cuts, do some actors have rhythms? Are you writing to them in the way like dance or do you get the specific or you keep it general so that it can be applied to any actor story? No, I, I, do, I do think that one of the easy things about working in film compared with trying to write away from film is that if you look, if the filmmaker is good, you look into yeah. their film and the story is there and a lot of things are there. The character, the, the discoveries of, of life and death are all there. So you get a lot of inspiration from that. And yes, it can be about rhythms and it can be about editorial rhythms, mm -hmm. but it can also be about speech rhythms and movement rhythms. Yes. So I, I did find one few years ago, I finally got to meet Matt Damon, which I, I, I didn't know him and I got to meet him very briefly. And, and I did say to him, I, had almost based my entire career on watching your ass walking away <laughs> you know because he had a he had a there was a visual language that he got into the character and Doug Lyman got into the camera work following him a lot of time and this was one of the things that Doug said to me is look I remember doing an action scene at the bank and he's you know he's escaping the bank scene. yeah you know that scene yeah okay, I know so it's a great fight scene yeah yeah the first time I did it 
it was kind of fast. Yeah. It was kind of energetic and fast. And Doug said to me, "What? What's with this?" I said, "I said, well, I'm just trying to get as much tension out of this." He goes, "Yeah, but look at him." So I, I what, what's going? He goes, "He's walking. He's walking." I said, "What do you mean he's walking?" He goes, "He's not running. He's walking." Now, what he meant was, despite not knowing who he was or why he had these skills, there was a built-in physicality to his his authority and he had authority in the scene to do what was coming to him that moment if i did the music too fast you you make it into you make him panicked he's not panicked his body isn't panicked his mind his mind is but his body isn't panicked so i think what we got to do there and i, I didn't really realize at the time was we scored his body his head was we didn't score his head we, we wrote the music for his body his body was saying i know what i'm doing trust me but his head was like what the hell is going on all the time so i i think what i did was i slowed all of the music right down mm-hmm. and and that was because of his walk and because of the way he moved and this this kind of visualization of part of his character of, of his of the duality of his character i mean at the time you don't really think these things through terribly. Uh, I think if you, at the times when I have intellectually been able to kind of figure stuff out instantly, it's probably a bit, it's a bit of me trying to find something that isn't there. When it just comes, you just react. When it's there, you just react, I think. So trusting your instincts on these things are very useful. And But part of the instinct obviously came only because the, director was able to communicate in a very important thing to me which is to look in the right place in the image because you can see so much in any image that comes up what do you look at you which character do you play do you support musically in a scene do you support the one that is sad or do you on the other side of this maybe you should support the one that's lying if one of the characters is not telling the truth and one is upset you can do sad music that's pretty basic if you support the one that is lying, this now becomes a much more interesting part of the story. How, well, so, how do you express musically? How do you express lying in music? Then, what do you reach for? Well, I mean, lying, would, yeah. lying would have tension. Mm. Sadness doesn't. Sadness mm. is just. It, it's just. It has a. Um, sadness has a, a flow of, 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 a, a different type of thing. It has a tension and release that is about waves of these kind of waves of of pain and then releasing pain release pain release pain release that's what sad music really often feels like but tension wouldn't release it would never release so i think that would be the thing and so it's about how you hold or move often in music so again if it's happy music it can have a flow to it because it doesn't need to have as much tension within that music. There's lots of tension and release, small, small tension yeah. and release. But it, it, as it flows and the speed at which it kind of moves forward, often that rhythms and things could, you can, one of the things I've noticed is that with violence in music, music that supports that's under violent scenes, you can soften the violence by making the rhythms comfortable. You can still kind of feel, it still feels like an action scene, but it can be fun. 
fun action scenes versus painful action scenes. And again, a painful action scene feels like there's more at stake because the music isn't, isn't comfortable. The music has a tension to it that's, that's difficult and is making you kind of tense yourself. Whereas some violence you will see, and we're able in Hollywood to soften violence hugely, very dangerously. And I, I hate, I try not to do those kind of films and I've tried not to do it myself, but you end up doing the gig you have to do sometimes. But you can really affect how people would respond to violent scenes in a movie as to how fast and slow and what kind of dance rhythms often. And I, I do use dance an awful lot, dance form and dance rhythms a lot probably gleaned from ballet <laughs> yes. um, it's a you know, and, 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 and Baroque music as well. Yes. There's a lot of sort of dance forms that, that I find do create fun in scenes, which is why mm-hmm. I'm better suited to doing less violent movies. <laughs> I yes. Think. <laughs> I, think, I, I think it's important, but the, the violent films that you have done have had some kind of interesting, as you say, there's this, subtext or there's something else driving it it's about a search for identity or something like this is interesting that i that i feel transcends their physical violence really making us think more so but i know that that's yeah i know that that's difficult it being in 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 the hollywood uh how you can avoid it and so you've done wonderful work for animation you have more fun i mean of all i don't know what i want to say but what what gives you most joy and then we should also speak about your um, work uh, not just as a, a film composer you have you're at the moment you told me that you are ren- you said renovating an opera yes. <laughs> so t- you tell yeah. me a bit about that too just like what you love what gives you joy what you know. well it is it is one of the things that I think people have always ask why, why are you doing so much animation we like your scores to to live action and I generally find live action to be less joyful mm-hmm. animation has more joy in it that needs to be represented and that joyful music that you get to write for films that is something that I think is a useful lasting thing for me to do with my time here mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to I don't know it's important to be able to make stories work help the storytellers make their films work to try and I like the idea of being able to work on movies where not only am I doing that but maybe the music in the end can have a value apart from the movie Mm -hmm. so I try and this probably makes me a bad candidate for certain films and that's okay if as long as I can find a few filmmakers who like the way I write I'll be fine and so that the ability to be like in Ferdinand, for instance, one of the first scenes I did in Ferdinand was this bull going into a, a flower market. He's, he's a lover of flowers and he, he goes to a flower market. It's, it's just the wonder for him of being able to see all these flowers and everything. Just, just the joyful animation mm-hmm. was such an inspiration that I wrote something I liked and mm-hmm. it was, it, it had all of the, it had many stories of my, my life probably and a lot of music i've heard that gives me joy and i i've always loved that about and that's probably why a lot of ballet music has been very joyful so i've always loved that about music that i've listened to where i i, I almost laugh with with joy uh, at it it's not funny music but it's it's got this picture of life that 
in my head that that is that I don't know, makes my heart grow. You know, simply a very simplistic way of describing it. But that's the problem with music is you can't really find the language, any other language, to explain it. But it's the same language that makes people want to dance. It's the same mm -hmm. language that makes people want to just I don't know, get up and get something done mm -hmm. when they're listening to certain types of music. So I just prefer to write, spend my life writing that kind of music than dark, dreary music. <laughs> There's plenty of people who are very good at that. And uh, I mean, I can do it. God knows I can do it. And so in writing other kinds of music, part of the question was, well, what do you do if you're not doing films? Am I really a composer? Because that's what I thought I was going to be, not a film composer. So I'd started to write music and I wrote a requiem about the First World War, Gosh. which was dark and, <laughs> dark and dreary, <laughs> a yes. lot of it. And, and so we were coming back and looking. So I'm trying to find other things to write. Again, it's about the reason that I got on with the Prussian Requiem is that once I found the story, once I realized that I could tell a story about the First World War in a way that I hadn't heard before. Because it, it, I was a great admirer of the War Requiem by uh, Benjamin Britten, and I suppose I was trying to do that. I was trying to do my version of it, but realized, actually, I need to look at what I have learned in the last 25 years in Hollywood, which is about story. And, and once I found the story of the night before the First World War started, in a couple of books and just the, the simple human nature of how these things how these apocalyptic things come to pass sometimes there are obviously lots and lots of reasons why first world war happened but i like to get to this point at which one man was asked should we do this or should we do this and because of his pride and his hubris he wanted to move forward with it, and he pushed it forward and it was as it, it, it meant that it, he basically, it was described in the book as, you know, he had a hissy fit and he was a child. And we're being led by a child at the moment. Very interesting watching a childish man uh, who's, you know, who's really only has self-interest. So that, that meant I had to find this story and it, and it helped me. Then looking for other pieces to write, I've been writing various other things, but nothing has really kind of found I haven't found that focus yet. On so I've got lots and lots of pieces going, but I haven't found the exact focus. There's one piece, one thing I'm doing uh, with my girlfriend Holly, who's a soprano, which is I. She was singing some Hildegard von Bingen, and so I think I've got I've got a load of recordings of her singing that, and I think ultimately it, this will become a sort of a new piece, which is a really Hildegard von Bingen. It's music, but from a perspective an interesting perspective of a story I'm trying to sort of find around it as a, such an interesting character in, in history and such beautiful music and beautifully sung. So I'm trying to sort of create a, a prism, a prism around it to, to tell a story. <coughs> so when I figure that out, that will be one piece. And then I've got a couple of other things going. This other thing came up, which is, it, we should really go back and look at this opera that Gavin Greenaway, who's been a friend of mine since we met at college mm. in uh, 84, 85, yeah, 84. We wrote with a, an artist friend of ours called Michael Petrie, who we'd done many installation art pieces with. And mm. one of the commissions he got was for the Bonn Kunsthalle, which is like the National Gallery, I think, of, of Germany. And they had a 300-seater hall. So his idea was, he said to them, okay, well, 
instead of doing an installation art piece, could I do an opera? And they said, well, why not? So we wrote an opera. It's a sort of chamber opera for 13 musicians, four solo singers and a chorus, women's chorus. And we performed it for two nights in Bonn in 94 or five. I can't remember that, 95, I think. And so we just thought, well, we should really dig that up and, and try and uh, renovate it. So we're going to make it a little longer, sort out some of the things that perhaps don't work as well, and get it properly recorded. And that, so that's you know one of the works, which is, yeah, it's going backwards. But I, I, I think there's a lot of essentially what Gavin and I have always loved about music in it, what we always wanted to do. And it's a, it's a fun piece. It's, it's literally an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Frenchman <laughs> go into a bar in heaven and chat. That's what it's about. And they look at their lives. And, and it, a lot of it's about the women in their lives, so three gay men, three great gay artists, great gay artists, and the way that their interactions with the women around them at that time. So it, it was, I think it was an interesting piece then, and, and I hope to sort of sharpen it and with Gavin. We'll, we'll sharpen it, we'll get performances, and we'll get it recorded. Again, live performance is very different. So I'm going to make a, want to make a record of it so that it works as a record, as an audio piece. It will be slightly longer. It will have more musicians on it than before, more chorus. Uh, but essentially, most of it should be as crazy and wacky and fun as the original was. The truth of it is you can look everywhere and see a story. Yeah. Our lives are built on the stories of, uh, of uh, 100,000 generations. Mm-hmm. And further back, if you, want to, if, you, if you believe in evolution. Mm-hmm. And... Those stories are common across the, the world. They come to everybody, and people will resonate the right way if you find the right bit of the story that mm-hmm. that has the ancient, the ancient links. I think mm-hmm. that works on the on the on the fundamental, not the not the not the surface. You can change the surfaces of of the same story many times, and it still will work. Because you're you're finding the you're finding the same resonance for for somebody in the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, and now in the 21st century, we we, we all experience the same losses and griefs and mm-hmm. things, and and whether it's building building the pyramids or building the, the Empire State Building, they are they use the same sort of bunch of characters, the people who comes up with an idea and pushes it all the way through to the end. Now, whether that's through a democratic kind of persuasion or whether it's through tyranny, <laughs> it's you still have that character. And then the people who actually do the work and the lives that are lost, but the, the Bridge Over the River Kwai, the great character uh, that Alec Guinness plays is, is a man who, who in the, his, the loss of his normal life means that he, he refuses to believe almost where he is and he just finds a way to function. And that way to function is to become efficient and to build. And he gets, it gets worse and worse and worse as, you, as we, the viewer, look at him become an instrument of pain for the rest of, of, his, of his men and his friends. And, and it's not until the very end he realizes what he's become. That's a, it's a true you know, story of, of redemption. It just is the redemption is just three minutes before the end of the film, as opposed to sometimes you have redemption at the 20 minutes before the end of the film point. Mm-hmm. And you can always tell a film that doesn't work is when the redemption's too early. <laughs> yes. Have you thought, on another note, have you thought about if you had 
would score your life? I mean, what kind of piece of music? What, how would you be telling your story to music? I already have. I think that's oh. the thing. Is that oh, your I think whole every, work. Is yes, every yeah. piece of music I've written is some way linked to something that's happened to me, I'm sure of it. Ah. I mean, that's all I'm probably trying to do. It's why I'm not a great choice for film composing because <laughs> I, I have my own agenda yeah. <laughs> of writing music. But I try oh. and lend it to the film. I try and identify with what's going on in the film as a as a person that's experienced things and find the one that works the closest to create music that will work well for the audience member watching it. So I've kind of already written everything up to now. I probably, I mean, there's plenty, plenty I haven't written probably, and I hope to just keep going and trying to find a way of writing from my past and and also maybe a. a hoped for future that's yes. probably harder to do but a lot of music composing as well i think just to be technical about it uh, isn't composition it is it's uh, a channeling and a filtering of every piece of music i've ever heard so yeah. i think i am musically what i've ever heard all the music i've ever heard whether it's i was consciously or unconsciously the things that I consciously remember being important to writing music will always be there. I call, I call them fetishes. So certain types of little thing that I loved in a myriad, myriad pieces, and they could be very divergent. They could be, sometimes they don't fit together well. Sometimes the right way they will fit together. But they're constantly these memories of music and my feelings about it, my emotional memories. That That's constantly what's flooding my head when I'm trying to write and I think in the confusion of a bad memory and and technical sort of and lacking lacking technically technically as a composer and as a musician it comes out its own way and I figured out over the years how to sort of focus it into something and as long as I like it as it comes forth from the history of music I've ever heard I try and make things fit together and then they become probably me because of the the matrix of of kind of mistakes and and misremembered things i think that's that's as important to me as as clear memories actually it's it's the vague memories that i i write with the vague memories of my history and of the musical history i've i've experienced over the years the thing is that i remember actually there's a composer from greece and woman composer i remember hearing her music in the 80s late 80s mm -hmm. and i think that was part of the tone that i used at the beginning of born identity uh -huh. <laughs> you know it, it, because it was very complicated uh, uh -huh. and it was, it was still it was all about stillness of trying to of learning where you were this you know awakening sound of awakening I remember using that so it's an interesting question about why greece hasn't had more composers in simply because it probably had some of the greatest composers ever we've just lost all the music that's the thing we can't <laughs> record it um but anyway i will look, i would like to include your music and in terms of teachers i want you spoke about some of your collaborators i guess collaborators what were some of the things as you were like coming to hollywood or coming into filmmaking or in the beginning finding your voice musically what was important for you i always think that when i went to music college uh, trinity college of music which is mm -hmm. now Trinity and Laban, which mm -hmm. they, they merged with a dance college, mm -hmm. a dance school. And just going there 
Did I learn orchestration? Did I learn composition? No, not really. I probably mainly learned how to be creative. And that was the most important thing for me. So I, I, once I hit Hollywood, I think I was recognized as somebody who was good at figuring out how to be creative. And so when I met Hans Zimmer, all I did was try and be really creative in front of him. I didn't really care whether it fitted or not whatever he was asking me to do. I was just trying to sort of show off creativity. And it worked. He did like that. I, did, I was trying not to sound like him, which he liked. He didn't want to hear himself, which is the mistake that a lot of people around him do, just trying to sound like Hans. It's, it was useful for me. I jumped at a lot of cues of other very good composers, perhaps, by just sounding weird and wonderful sort of thing. And he appreciated that because he's very creative. So Hans was a huge influence on, on that somebody who encouraged that. And, and Terrence Malick was one of the first things I ever did uh, on a film called Endurance. He was the producer, but he was, he was a very big part of the music. And he treated me like an artist. He didn't know me. I was some kid, and that was wonderful. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg was, was a great influence on me, great teacher. His, his take on music was very, very deliberately basic. I mean, he was always trying to tell us Listen to the voice, listen to my voice, not because it's me, but because I can represent for you a general population. And that is a, it's a fundamentally important thing in, in cinema to say, okay, well, have we got away from the general audience? We're trying to make this as universal as possible. What do people respond to? How do they respond to things? Overcomplicating things does not help. Finding the basics, finding the fundamental tone of, of music is very important making your melodies simple. So that was very important. But before that, a conductor called Colin Metters, who conducted this, he was a professional conductor, but he would come every summer and spring and Christmas break and conduct a, a youth orchestra in East Sussex that I was in in my teenage years. And he was a fundamental part of me understanding music, the storytelling as well. I never really realized this until recently. But he showed us in symphonies the stories. He never did. He didn't do it with words. He would just do it by showing how this music was pieced together and how we could bring out the best in it, and how we could perform it in a way that it would make the whole story resonate. And that was absolutely fundamental to me being able to do any of this now. So there's been a lot of people. My electronic music teacher. I remember him giving me a, a very difficult task, which is, all right, you're too complicated. You've got a sine wave and you've got four tracks, four track tape machine. Okay, make me something really intriguing, just with sine waves on a synth. And, and four, I, I said it was impossible. I said, what are you talking about, impossible? And I struggled with it, struggled with it. And that made me search for what is interesting. What is interesting? And it had to be interesting to me, first of all, because part of the trouble with art is you get in front of yourself all the time. You trip over your own feet because you're doing more denying than you are accepting because especially when you're trying to be interesting, you're trying to be original. So trying to be original sets up barriers for yourself. But if you don't have that set of that kind of requirement of yourself to not be the same as everybody else, you will be the same as everybody else and you won't be very interesting. So it's a paradoxical state you're in. So trying to get yourself laterally out of it I think is what I learned with Glenn Morgan, his name, wonderful, wonderful American gentleman um, living in London at the time. So, I mean, I, I've had a, a Sergio Mendes, working with Sergio Mendes on, on the Rio film. I, I learned so much about life and music. Again, a very different direction from how I, I'd ever expected it to, 
Tam. Um, or uh, I've just been working with uh, Jim Mangold on uh, oh. Call of the Wild. And he taught me such complex lessons that I can't even, again, I'll write a piece at some point which will explain the, the complexity of the lessons. Because <laughs> I can't even find language for how complicated the explanation would be to use words for these things. But really kind of something that made me shift inside. So when you meet people and they give you their experience of the, of the world in a way that shifts everything, it takes me a long time to be able to know what happened or why or what it was that happened and how I need to figure that out. And the deeper the stuff, the longer it will take me to actually be able to explain verbally. But perhaps it will change me more quickly in my writing. I think that's that's something that's perhaps happened to me before. These fundamental changes easier to express in musical terms than they are in, in verbal terms. You spoke a little bit about writing for the rhythms of certain actors, and I wonder—I mean, because so much is the scenery of filmmaking, and I think about you've written, well, you've written tangos and things like that that were obviously like inspired by a certain. Um, genre of music or place but when you're writing as you think about the character of a city or a place and how are you how I mean on an unconscious level are you even thinking about ambient sound it it depends what you're asking it's if you were asking me to make a you know musical representation of something yes I I would I've always wanted to do a piece of being in an emergency room the noises in an emergency room Mm -hmm. the counter melodies and rhythms of beeping and, and and cries and everything it was a really kind of traumatic place to be but yeah. i remember it being deep i felt the, the sound of it deeply and one day yeah. i'll figure out how to write a piece of that but if you want me to write to support characters in a in a city you have to say okay well did the director make the characters correctly to yeah. represent that city and therefore, their connection with the city should also be represented in the music. Uh-huh. And that, that's kind of more what we did in Rio, is yeah. that uh, Carlos, who comes from Rio, really understood the city. And so his characters came naturally out of it. And also, obviously, an, an important character, which is one who comes from um, Minneapolis. And he's very, very uh, alien to that world, so the main character. And in a way, I was in that film... For that reason, it was, we had Sergio Mendes, we had Carlinhos Brown on music, we had Carlos, who's Brazilian. I was surrounded by Brazilians all the time, and one of the things that Carlos, the director, said is that, because I said to him, I said, what if, why have you got an Englishman doing the music to this? Because one of my favorite composers and a good friend of mine is Heitor Pereira, who's from Rio, and he's the most brilliant musician and composer. But what Carlos said to me was, he said, I, do, I, want, I want an alien I want somebody who's not from there to come with us on this journey so that you can, you can help build a bridge to the rest of the world to show mm. what we're trying as a bunch of Brazilians, what we're trying to say about this city. Mm. And I like I liked that taking that responsibility for being, okay, I'm just a normal person, the Jeffrey Katzenberg thing, mm-hmm. which is I'm a normal person in the world. What do I understand? Even though I know I didn't know that much about Brazilian music, but I've heard lots and lots of different types of music. How can I represent for the rest of the world the the things that focus us through Brazilian music into the part of the story that is universal? 
So I was able to, I guess, not have too much inside knowledge where Sergio and Carlinos and, and, and Carlos, the director, mm. may have headed down a musical path that was very, very wonderful and meaningful for only for Brazilians. I was able to say, okay, that's fine, but this type of music that you've been playing in this world, this seems to resonate with me because I'm an alien, I'm a, a foreigner. Mm. So trying to find literally Rio's music as a foreigner was a, an intriguing sort of use of my own, my own musical history or lack thereof in this particular case. And to just find the stuff that would be easier for the rest of the world to understand and would represent the city. And that's the characters, I think. Yeah, the, and the vividness. Maybe they don't see it anymore, but for us, it's like going to the color scene in The Wizard of Oz or something. Wow, look. It's just That's explodes. true. That, that is yeah. very true. Yeah, and the trouble yeah. with animation, of course, is you, I'm working on that film. I didn't have the vivid stuff until quite late. <laughs> yeah. So, so we that's had nice. Kind of, you could have the music first. I know normally it's the other way around. Yeah. Any any kind of musical like that, yeah. Happy Feet, Rio. Yeah. We had to do the music first because it has to yeah. be you know shot to it, even yeah. though it's it's animated to it. So it's interesting working blind. You've been talking about the importance of music and the arts, and so I just like. We think a little bit, I think, especially now about the future. I guess now is the time we're all indoors and we're reflecting on it. But as you think about, yes, the future and technology and all these crises and, and everything that's going on in the world, the environment, how would you like to improve some of these systems and maybe integrate what you've learned through the collaborative process and the arts? Well, I made this point when we, I did a concert last year for the orchestra that the youth orchestra that i was in and i wrote a piece for it and i, I gave a quick speech at the beginning of it so it, the the orchestra had been going for 40 years mm. and we estimated about 15 or 1600 people had been through the orchestra over those mm. years and been through a process that had changed everybody mm. um, whether you're in it for one year or in my case i was in it for about six or seven years and i and i was also hearing stories of the county that i was in east sussex their music department was constantly being battered with less and less money. They were being damaged, their, their ability to be able to use music as an educational tool in, in that area that I had so hugely benefited from 40 years earlier. So I asked the question, is that what is the cost of educating the soul? Mm. That, as previously in sort of iterations of the world, and st still unfortunately is, is that the people use religion to supposedly do that. But with that brings a, a politic and a clearly too many uh, biases. Whereas music is a universal unbiased language. Uh, you can play anything for any reason and all it does is bring beauty and joy to the world. And what the people learning how to do it get from it is an education that, is, uh, that cannot be explained. It's an education that is beyond uh, normal sort of educational faculty. It it gives us everything from, at the most basic, the ability to be able to collaborate and work with others and understand others, listen more carefully to what other people are saying, albeit in language or whether they're speaking. So many fundamentally important lessons come from helping people not just 
hear music and love music. But that difficult, admittedly, and it's still difficult for me, that change from understanding to speaking, trying to speak music, trying to speak the arts, even if it's not something you're going to do for the rest of your life, I think requires of you so many multiplex of difficult and rewarding challenges at any age, whether it's two years old or 20 years old or 40 years old, you can learn it at any time. It will evolve you in a way that even the basics of reading or writing are fundamental to society survival. I just think right now we can see that part of the survival of society will be a more evolved society. And this is the only way I can think of doing it. You can educate everybody to a higher level technically, but if their souls aren't, if they have an education of 150 years old, 150 years of wisdom, mm. but emotionally they're three years old, you're not really going to get great decisions made by people who then end up in power because of the, the vast sort of importance of their technology. Mm. If they don't have an emotional maturity, then that's when you see this kind of you know, problem in things like Facebook and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, there's an immaturity to the way that such powerful tools are being have been wielded. That it is really about the sort of the lack of emotional growth that perhaps mm -hmm. has happened in what is clearly a lot of very very brilliant brains. So I don't know. That would be my only solution: is that what give everybody a violin? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. But well, I, I think that at least the value of art, the value of music, the, the idea that people put it at the bottom, it's, I mean, my, my list of things is always education. Yes. And as soon as you've learned to read, write and speak, I think then you should be trying to make music. Yes. <laughs> because then it's like, you know, I, I'm always sad that I never learned a second language. I mean, I, was, uh -huh. I, I feel very, very minimalized by the fact yeah. that I only have one language. But I've, fortunately, I've had this other very important language, which is music, which I've been learning to speak. And it's like a four-dimensional language that mm -hmm. I think people would benefit from in a way that will probably pay such dividends and, and has, done, has done. I mean, I think we see, that we see the results of the fact that art is still going, that people are so creative. I think this is all a result of every generation still at least getting a chance to understand music and being being invited into it because it's such an it's such an extraordinarily important part of of our world and the the more we deny that the 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 greater the danger is that we will lose our hearts to existence as opposed to life i think that's so important i mean you spoke before about the importance of joy or not forgetting that and so material wealth is something look we've all been doing without in this uh, last few months but what gives you joy do you do you love what you do is it not just for uh, making money but do you yeah. feel fulfilled in that and it's interesting that you said yes of course music is a language because all as you were just speaking i was kept on thinking well you're talking about listening you're really talking about translating and, and it's being able to say i understood what you said and this is how i interpret it and this is how i get back um yeah i think i think it's one of the uh, it's one of the important things i do feel and it maybe we'll feel in these days one of the essential the essential activities as well <laughs> as, as we're all indoors we, we're consuming a lot of culture um to keep us sane i i think so 
thank you, John Powell, for sharing your insights, for all your contributions to cinematic storytelling and to music generally. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Sammy Sherian. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. A special thanks to John Powell for allowing us to share his main title music from the Born Trilogy identity throughout the podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.